welcome to episode 79 of Junk Filter. My name is Jesse Hawken, and my returning guest, the man who does the music for the program, Toronto musician Marker Starling. I know him as Chris Cummings. Chris, hello. Welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me back on. Our subject for today is a great film to talk about, a personal favorite of ours, the 1973 all-star murder mystery, The Last of Sheila. Directed by Herbert Ross, the only screenplay by Stephen Sondheim, who co-wrote the movie with Anthony Perkins. We're probably going to spoil this movie for you because it's a murder mystery. We need to talk about the details of the movie. But we're also going to talk about the 1970s and the cast of characters who pretty much represent the 1970s. We'll tell you a little bit about uh, some fun facts about all of the, the stars of this film. The other thing that we should say at the top of the show is that this film was co-written by Anthony Perkins, co-stars James Mason, and took place on a boat. So technically, it's part of the Folks Cinematic Universe. That's right. The French Riviera. Playground for the beautiful people. Sheiks, industrialists, Hollywood stars and directors, the rich and super rich. The resorts that dot that fabulous shoreline are familiar to most. Nice, Villefranche, Antibes, Cannes, Cap Ferrat. Behind the shiny veneer, the so-called beautiful people amuse themselves. Their intrigue and the games they play often become so intense as to take on a reality of their own. Sondheim and Perkins were lovers of games and uh, and crossword puzzles and acrostics and scavenger hunts, and they threw their enthusiasms into this film. Yeah, Sondheim was obsessed with games his whole life, and he, in fact, uh, he talked um, or he he brought the uh, cryptic crossword puzzles, or he brought a certain type of crossword puzzle that had only existed in Britain to America in the late sixties. The movie was inspired by these real-life scavenger hunts that Sondheim and Perkins arranged for their show business friends, including Lee Remick and George Siegel. Amazing. And Herb Ross, Herbert Ross also took part in these treasure hunts with his wife. And Ross said that one of the clues in one of the games they played was spelled out by icing on a cake that had been cut up into different pieces. Right. And by the time they realized that some of the guests had already eaten the cake. Yeah. <laughs> but this is the crazy part. So the climax of one scavenger hunt was staged in the lobby of this really sleazy hotel in New York, where participants heard this skipping record that was playing endlessly. And it was playing the first line of the song, One for My Baby. So the record kept saying, it's quarter to three, it's quarter to three, it's quarter to three. So the winning team recognized the clue, 245. And they immediately headed for room 245 of the hotel where Sondheim and Perkins were there with bottles of champagne. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, How fun would that have been? That would have been so much fun. And this is another incredible game that Sondheim played. Uh, They had a murder game that, uh, that they came up with. And Sondheim said, the idea for the movie grew out of two murder games I devised some time ago. One was for Phyllis Newman, the other for four couples just after I got out of college. A murder game? No, nobody gets murdered. With the four couples, I told each person to think of a way to kill one of the others over the weekend we would be spending together in the country. Then we passed out envelopes, and inside one was an X. 
That person was the only one who was to carry out the plan. The others were to spend the entire weekend avoiding being murdered. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> so so, so th- this is like, yeah, this was real to him. Like th- these were all things that he had done in real life. These murder games. That's that's incredible. One of his friends, producer-director Herb Ross, was so intrigued by the game Sondheim invented that he asked him to write a screenplay about the murder game a movie producer plays to uncover the real-life murderer of his wife. The way the, the picture arose was that Herbie Ross called me and asked, would I be interested in doing an entire script based on a murder game? So I called Tony and asked him if he'd be interested in helping me. That Tony is actor Anthony Perkins. He'd never done any writing at all, but I knew he had exactly my kind of mind and take, and he's much more into murder mysteries than I am. So we started to plot it. We spent a couple of months plotting and had such a good time, we decided to go ahead and write it. I think the most fun I've ever had writing anything was writing the screenplay. They collaborated on inventing and testing different kinds of murder games, selecting the best of each. And when they were done plotting, they called the movie script The Last of Sheila. So before we get going on this, let's talk about how we first saw this movie. Uh, well, <laughs> the circumstances under which I, I first saw it were uh, we were both students at Seed Alternative School uh, in 1987 or 88. Uh, and we had a teacher called Kevin who showed a, he did a film appreciation uh, course, which started off as a course on uh, musicals mostly from like the pre-code era. And so we saw a lot of musicals from the twenties and that was kind of neat because that was my introduction to that era in a way. So, so Kevin, if you're listening, we love you. You've had a a big influence on our lives (laughs) because the films that he also showed were bye bye birdie. You're a big boy now brainstorm because he was obsessed with Natalie Wood. Uh, (laughs) Bedazzled baby doll. Incredible film, silent running the hospital uh, they might be giants. The PBS telecast of Sunday in the Park with George, with Mandy Patinkin and Bernadette Peters, mm-hmm. and and The Last of Sheila, which I think you may have had a hand in sort of prompting him to uh, to show to us. I might have. You know, the other movie that Kevin showed in the class that made a huge impression on me was Petulia. Oh, that was that was one of the ones that we saw as part of that. Okay, yeah, no, that that made a huge impression on me too. And um, you know, I just rewatched that. Um, uh, recently and that's uh still very it, it's a real uh you know curio but um pretty emotionally like it packs an emotional punch for sure george c scott and uh, julie christie yeah kevin's specialty in this uh film class that we were taking were sort of like uh unheralded cult classics of a sort of certain grouping you know like it yeah. makes perfect yeah. sense to watch you know bedazzled and uh did he show uh, two for the road too? He might have. Yeah, that's another. <laughs> that sort of fits into that same s- semi subgenre that we're talking about. It was sort of like what a lot of these films had in common, where they were sort of the stepping over points between the older version of Hollywood and the newer version of Hollywood. That's sort of how it felt to me—a mm-hmm. more modern approach to classical storytelling. Yeah, yeah. Petulia being one of the ultimate examples of that. Right. Right, because yeah, like I had forgotten that the Grateful Dead are in that, and like it, it, it takes place in San Francisco at that point in like '67, mm-hmm. when there was this, you know, clash of generations, and uh, sort of captures that in a in a neat way. Like, 
and Nicholas Rogue is the is the cinematographer on it. So it has his kind of it has a bit of his um magic in it as well. Yeah, I mean it's a it's an interesting movie because it's got uh, what turned out to be Rogue's editing style in a movie yeah. that was shot by him but not edited by him. Yeah. It has that sort of uh, splintered narrative where you keep seeing things that make more sense as the film continues, but are actually things that are going to happen later in the movie often. Yeah, yeah, that's right. But anyway, he showed the last of Sheila in there. You know, what were some uh, 18-year-old cool kids in 1987, 88 to make of, you know, (laughs) this uh, wacky murder mystery uh, starring a bunch of uh, 70s actors. I don't know whether or not the whole room was enjoying themselves as much as you and I were. <laughs> yeah. Well, I remember having this kind of overwhelmingly, uh, like slightly, like there was like a certain repulsion that I felt just because of the way that the murders are shown in the, in the movie, like the deaths in the movie are very grisly. And I had never realized until watching it this time that it has a sort of hammer horror, uh, uh, connection and, and like, you know, the woman who plays Sheila, who gets killed at the beginning of the movie is a hammer. She was in a lot of the hammer horror films and they mention hammer horror at, at one point. And so there are all these little, little connections, but also I, you know, I was, I was pretty ignorant of like the larger queer context of the film. Like at the time, like that was all kind of lost on me then, but there's a, there's a certain richness of, of the film that having been written by two gay men, like it's, it's, has has more um, resonance than it would have been if it was like an all het, uh, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Um, these this th- for me, like my seventies childhood, there was a lot of gay content that was basically coded and out in the open for you to take in if you were aware of it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I was, like, I was, you know, I was still fairly naive, so I didn't. It went over my head at that. Yeah. Point. So how I saw The Last of Sheila was a very surreal and formative experience for me as a cineast. Um, I was taken to see it uh, because I was uh, a 70s child and my parents went to uh, movie night to go and watch movies with friends. And Mm -hmm. that evening, we all went to a drive-in. And in the 70s, uh, you know, sometimes parents would get babysitters. But sometimes parents would just uh, go with the with the kids to go watch a movie. Yeah. So you were in a car full of adults. I was in a car full of adults, and I was probably five because oh this God. was about 1973. <laughs> this um, would have, have traumatized. Like just watching some of the scenes in this movie would have traumatized me and made me unable to watch movies. Like, <laughs> yeah. Well, I have fond memories of of this. It was one thing that I really appreciated about my parents is that they uh, they would. Uh, I was shown uh, material that was not really children's stuff. And, and yeah. it got me interested in storytelling and uh, genre tropes and things from a very young age. But I, yeah. but when I was little, I really wanted to understand the world of grownups and maybe be a grownup as quickly as possible. Um, so I was kind of from an early age interested in, in grownup movies. And I think it may have all started the, with my introduction to The Last of Sheila, which uh, I don't really remember the details of this movie, but there were two things that happened in this film that were burned into my brain. And I think it was because I must have fallen asleep and then woken up during the movie. Cause I remember in my mind seeing a scene that happens in the last of Sheila where somebody is found dead in a bathtub. 
and which is uh, presented which is, in a really horrifying it's manner. presented in a very horrifying manner and uh, so i remember that out of context vision and then i remember the end credits which is bet midler singing a song about you got to have friends while the end credits are playing over a photograph of the cast but in my little mind my young mind i thought that those were two shots one after another <laughs> so that someone was dead in a bathtub and then the credits started rolling that's how I remembered it. And so I think I was scared to revisit The Last of Sheila for the longest time. Yeah. Like yeah. I was like, this is a movie that scarred me for life as a child. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, definitely. I, I wouldn't, yeah, I wouldn't have been able to handle that. I mean, I was scared by an episode of Little House on the Prairie featuring a <laughs> cut off yeah. head a Halloween episode. I had to turn the TV off and I don't think I ever watched Little House on the Prairie ever again. So yeah, it was a movie that uh, I think sent me on my way to wanting to watch movies made for grownups. So I must have been, in some ways, a very insufferable child. <laughs> I remember forcing my dad to take me to see The Eagle Has Landed, the Michael Caine <laughs> World War II movie when I was eight years old. <laughs> I don't remember hearing you say that title before. That is so funny. Like, what a choice for an eight-year-old. <laughs> so what what was it that appealed to you about the eagle has landed? I think well because it looked like a movie for grownups and the, the commercials on TV made it look good and you know yeah. and it was very serious um, yeah. you know and my parents were probably like don't you want to watch the rescuers or Pete's Dragon <laughs> why do you want to watch <laughs> the Big Fix with Richard Dreyfuss <laughs> Yeah, that's another funny one. Well, one of the let's see, I mean this isn't exactly the same, but I did see Time After Time. Yeah, uh, when I was ten, that as did I. That scared the hell out of me. The the whole Jack Warner, Jack the Ripper part yeah. just scared the hell out of me. But I mean, that's a pretty like lightweight film if you see it now, I think. And I, I saw nine to five uh, yeah. when that, I saw that three times in the theater, actually. Uh, I uh, totally loved that. And then uh, right afterwards, the incredible shrinking woman. Yes. I also <laughs> saw that in the theater. Joel Schumacher's first film. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it was also my introduction to Charles Grodin. Yes. Yeah, I knew, uh, you know, okay, here's another one that was ridiculous that I wanted to see when I was a kid was The Silver Bears with Sybil Shepard and uh, Louis Jordan. And I believe Charles Grodin. (laughs) Well, I saw Heaven Can Wait when I was a kid. That was a big movie for me when I was 10. It had Diane Cannon in it and James Mason. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, And The Four Seasons with Alan Alda and Carol Burnett. Yeah, that was sort of that. That was an area of adult uh, movies for adults that I wouldn't go to. Like I wouldn't yeah. see like Neil Simon plays and stuff. Yeah, like I was. I don't think I saw any of the Neil Simon movies, but it was yeah, it was very Neil Simon adjacent for sure. The reason why I wanted to see it was because Len Carew was in it, and I was obsessed with Sweeney Todd because I had I had listened to the um, the Sweeney Todd record obsessively. And read read along with the uh, libretto and stuff, and that was sort of my first like delving into uh, uh, Sondheim. But that was really like one of the only like Broadway shows that I got completely into like that. Like I was never really that much of a show tunes person, although I went through a, a phase of of liking uh, show tunes. But I immediately recognized that Sondheim was like sort of a level above everything else. Like it was like approaching classical music and opera, and the and the sort of intricacies of the wordplay and everything were, were very like appealing to me as an 11 year old and um, a couple of other uh, childhood connections with Sondheim. The the song send in the clowns was constantly on television in the seventies on variety shows. 
which were a thing that they used to fill up a lot of space on television in the seventies. And I found them the most boring thing in the world. And, uh, I absolutely could not stand that song because mm-hmm. I couldn't understand that, you know, a song could be about something like, uh, falling in love with the person who had once been in love with you, but it's too late and they've already moved on. And, uh, that the phrase send in the clowns could mean, you know, I need cheering up that never, that never occurred to me at that age. But, um, I heard the song being alive very early as well, because I was obsessed with the jazz singer, Cleo Lane. And yes. the, the very first concert I attended, uh, at Ontario place forum, my mother brought me uh, as an eight year old was Cleo Lane, uh, the day before the first day of grade three. Mm-hmm. And she did a Sondheim uh, medley on one of her records that included being alive. So that just shot straight to the center of my soul right away. And then of course we have in 2019, uh, both of those songs appearing in uh, major motion pictures because uh, send in the clowns was in Joker and being alive was in marriage story. That's right. And they and were both completely unearned. I thought, <laughs> <laughs> I know that was a big eye roll for me. Cause I just saw Joker for the first time last week. And, uh, when they yeah. brought out the Sondheim, I was like, oh, come on. Like, the maybe this is the Joker hallucinating, but like, this is a little on the nose to me. Totally. But, and also Sondheim uh, had a sort of a last hurrah uh, this year because West Side Story got uh, returned uh, to prominence culturally. Right. Not right. as and big so, a hit as everyone was hoping. Yeah, that's, that's too bad. Well, I, I still haven't seen it, but... Um he got to see it before he died, right? I believe so. Yeah. He died a couple of months before West side story opened. And I think I read somewhere that he did get a chance to see it before he passed. Because From what I understand, he wasn't much of a fan of the 1961 West side story. I'm not a playwright. I don't know how to write plays and I have no ambition to write plays. I don't even have ambition to write libretto. I really only want to write songs, but I've always been fascinated with the possibilities of doing a murder mystery, either on the stage or on the screen. I wonder what it was about murder mysteries that uh, appealed to audiences so much in the 70s, because there was a wave of that stuff, starting Mm. off with Sleuth. Yeah, yeah. Well, dare I say, Watergate. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Quite possibly. That was going on, and like that was unfolding on television every day. Uh (laughs) Watergate was kind of the one of the early examples of like, of people getting all galaxy brained about uh, who's behind it all and trying to unravel the mysteries themselves. The main yeah. appeal of a murder mystery is that you're doing some work as a member of the audience. Right. Yeah. You were working. The filmmakers have planted clues and hints and you are trying to follow them. And you're also um, kicking the tires on movies like this to make sure they make sense and looking for errors in uh, the structure. Yeah. The Last of Sheila is very, very clearly modeled on real people and real events and sort of almost like the fantasy versions that Sondheim and Perkins had of actual famous people. So it's very transparently based on real people. In the movie, all the people that have gotten together to be a part of this game are these various kind of Hollywood washouts. Yeah. People that could have been big who it didn't really work out for them. And one of the sort of sly jokes of this movie is that they actually cast some actors on the downward slide to be <laughs> in this movie. Right. They're all, they're all sort of his friends, but they all want something from him and they all. 
Yeah, because it's they Hollywood. They need him for they some all, reason. They, everybody, all friendships are transactional. And the yeah. reason why all these people want to be on the boat is because they want something from this producer. And the producer yeah. knows that he that these people want something that he has. Uh, so, of course, he uses the fact that they're only too willing to debase themselves in some ways to put them through this really sadistic game. Yeah. Before we get going, let's let's break down the cast and we'll do it in alphabetical order. Uh, just like the movie does. So Richard Benjamin uh, plays Tom Parkman, this screenwriter. Give me your thoughts on Richard Benjamin. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, he was like a movie star of a particular era. Like he could have only been a movie star at that point. I think, mm-hmm. you know, like he had a particular look and uh, he has a mustache in this movie, but he didn't always, he usually didn't have a mustache, right? Except for in Westworld. He also had a mustache which came out the same year as this. Uh, He has a great performance in diary of uh, mad housewife as the shitty husband of um, Carrie Snodgrass. And uh, he was in Portnoy's complaint. Right. Yeah. And he was in goodbye Columbus catch 22 and then made no films between 1983 and 1992, but he had become a director by that point. So he, he made my favorite year and uh, several other, the money pit, the money. pit. (laughs) He had a couple of big hits. Mm-hmm. But uh, and then he went off to be in television, and Richard Benjamin's still alive. I think he's in his mm-hmm. late eighties at this point, mid to late eighties. Uh, but he's still with us. But it, there was it, this weird period in the early seventies where he was a movie star. Yeah, he was in this. Uh, w- the first movie I saw him in was also another puzzle film, Scavenger Hunt, nineteen seventy nine. <laughs> Did you see that? No, no. <laughs> it was bad. I, I even thought it was bad as a ten year old. I remember Richard Benjamin from Love at First Bite with George Hamilton. Yeah, I saw that in the theater. <laughs> saw that in the theater. He was the boyfriend of the woman that Dracula was in love with. He winds up okay. sort of being the Van Helsing of the storyline. Right. He sort of transitioned from being a leading man into supporting roles. Yeah. That must have been why he became a director. But my favorite year is very entertaining. That was his mm-hmm. that was his first feature film, and it's a pretty good movie. He was he's been married to Paula Prentice since nineteen sixty one. Uh, they co-starred in catch 22 also with Anthony Perkins and they were the couple who steered Anthony Perkins towards, uh, this controversial thing that we just discovered that he went through conversion therapy in 1971, which we can talk about when we get to him. Next in the cast is Diane Cannon, another great seventies beauty. Yeah. She was in such good friends, which you and I had the good fortune (laughs) to see in a movie theater to the Otto Preminger. Uh, movie secretly written by Elaine May and uh, unfortunately has a Burgess Meredith nude scene. Yeah, I'll never be able to unsee that. <laughs> but, but yeah, truly bizarre uh, uh, Otto Parminger film. I, I recently just saw Skidoo for the first time as well. Yes. That, have you watched that all the way of through? Course, of course. <laughs> it's a real endurance test. Uh, yeah. Well, it's not as unwatchable as I thought, but uh, and I love the Harry Nilsson uh, sung credits at the end. But anyway, Diane Cannon, here's an interesting thing about her. She was married to uh, Cary Grant for two years between 1965 and 67. And he forced her to take LSD and was apparently a very bad husband. Um, but uh, her breakthrough was in uh, Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice from 1969, directed by Paul Mazursky, which feels kind of tangentially related to this film tone wise, because it's sort of about, couples who are experimenting with different forms of coupledom, I suppose. And, uh, 
and it's sort of about like California cults and things like that. And, and what else was Diane Cannon in? She was in Honeysuckle Rose. Uh, Honeysuckle Rose, which is surprisingly good. Yeah. And uh, she plays the wife of Willie Nelson. Uh, the, the, you know, the hard done by a spouse of, of Willie Nelson. And then she's also very good in death trap, uh, with Michael Caine, also the star of sleuth, uh, which is another puzzle puzzle film, but more in a more sort of manic comic mode. And, um, Michael Caine sort of screams all his lines and she does a very over the top comic performance as well, which is very good. Mm -hmm. And she was, Oh yeah. She was in primal scream therapy in the early seventies. Which is an interesting uh, that makes sense detail. She and John Lennon, but they might have crossed paths at the Arthur Yanov uh, Primal Scream therapy place in California. So she's she's the Sue Mengers character in this movie named Christine. Yeah, and they wanted Sue Mengers to actually be in it. Yeah, and then so they asked her, and she said no. But my client Diane Cannon can be in it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. She said she didn't want to cost an actor a part. She also said that she couldn't act. Although Diane Cannon said that Sue Mengers was never actually in in real consideration for that role. Oh, okay. But they did uh, go and take photos of Sue Mengers' agency's office in right. L.A. to recreate it for the sets of the last of Sheila. Right, right. That's a good detail. And they might not have actually cast a top talent agent in Hollywood as herself. Uh, for real, but uh, that's the legend. Right. The next guy in the cast is James Coburn. Yes. Who's Clinton Green, the producer who organizes this murder mystery trip. Possibly my favorite performance. And and his, you know, his demise suddenly halfway through the movie, it kind of de-energizes the last half of the movie in a lot of ways. Yeah. But um, he had an interesting career because he sort of spent a lot of time playing supporting roles and then became a leading man in the late sixties when he was about 40. And, uh, so he was 45, he was born in 1928. So he was 45 when this movie came out, he had sort of achieved this persona because of uh, the, the Flint, uh, movies and the president's analyst and things like that as this kind of sardonic wise cracking guy, the Carrie treatment, the Blake Edwards movie. Have you seen that one? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> this pretty bad, like Michael Crichton medical drama with hip slang talking, uh, doctors and a groovy score. But, uh, you know, it, it has it, the art direction in it is incredible. I always thought of James Coburn as sort of a combination of Lee Marvin and Z man from beyond the Valley of the dolls. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> Sort of like a type A personality, very, very outgoing and gregarious. Coburn had like a gigantic toothy smile, ridiculous choppers. I I should interject at this point that uh, uh, I was listening to this amazing podcast called um, uh, I Am the Egg Pod, this UK podcast that went through the the Get Back movie day by day in January 2022. And one of the things that one of the guests pointed out was that uh, the producer, Glenn Johns, it basically is Z-Man. (laughs) he's his haircut his clothing everything is exactly the same as z-man from beyond the valley of the dolls (laughs) anyway um, well and and coburn was pals with paul mccartney right okay yeah that that's a good uh, connection to draw on so uh coburn is one of the six people apart from the the band members who appear on the cover of band on the run (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> along with Christopher Lee. I know. It was so I was so confused at that album cover when I was a kid cuz like I realized that 
I there was there was two familiar looking people. It wasn't yeah. me having another flashback to the last of Sheila because I guess they came out <laughs> around the same time, right? But he has the Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid mustache on the cover of uh, of uh, Band on the Run. Yeah, Coburn oh. was in several Peck and Paw movies, right? So he was in Major Dundee, um, uh, in a supporting role, which if you don't know it's him it, he's pretty unrecognizable for the, until he smiles like until he shows his teeth because he has a huge beard and heavy eyebrows and brown hair and we mostly know him with not having brown hair of course mm-hmm. but uh yeah peck and paw so he was in major dundee and then pat garrett and Gil- billy the kid and then cross of iron the, the world war ii movie also with james mason which i just resaw recently but it's it's one of his cocaine era films and it's pretty incoherent um, at the end of principal photography, uh, he said to Sam Peckinpah on major Dundee, goodbye, you rotten motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> but, but they were actually close friends and they were, they remained friends up until Peckinpah's death in 1984. Yeah. Uh, actually the Osterman weekend is a little bit like the last of Sheila. <laughs> <laughs> I need to rewatch. I need to rewatch. Uh, Coburn was also one of the pallbearers at the funeral of Bruce Lee. Yeah, he, uh, he he was close friends with Bruce Lee, who who trained him in uh, martial arts, and and of course he was in 1978. He began to make a series of commercials for the Schlitz Brewing Company. He was paid five hundred thousand dollars to promote a new product, saying only two words: Schlitz Light. Yeah. Will you please include some audio from those commercials? Yeah. <laughs> Schlitz Light. Schlitz Light beer has a third fewer calories than our other fine beer and all the taste beer drinkers expect from Schlitz. I watched the Coburn Schlitz campaign and I realized that he was doing Japanese TV commercials in the United States. <laughs> Like he was used, he, he, he made like half a million dollars to, for one day of work. Like Tommy Lee Jones, uh, uh, the, the coffee, uh, yeah. boss coffee, his face is all over. When I went to Japan, I was amazed that his face is all over, uh, you know, cause they have the, the coffee vending machines on the street there and they all have the, the boss coffee logo. Well, when, you know, when you want a refreshing beverage, you, the first movie star you think of is Tommy Lee Jones. Well, I mean, yeah, I don't exactly think of. James Coburn, when I think of drinking light beer, no, you know, and he also has this little machine that he, in some of the commercials, he has this box where he presses a button on the top and it opens up to reveal a large personalized drinking glass yeah. that he pours the, the beer into. That was a, that's an incredible discovery. You know, the, the listeners should uh, treat themselves and go and find those seven or eight commercials, which are all on YouTube. Yeah, I'll, I'll put one of them in the show description in the links. And then, and then of course, he had his his late nineties uh, resurgence in uh, in Affliction. Yeah, uh, where he was he was uh, playing uh, Nick Nolte's uh, father, and apparently went. He was told by Paul Schrader that he would need to portray the character at two different ages, and he said, "You mean you want me to act?" <laughs> <clears throat> and. <laughs> That's sort of like the main thing about him is like a lot of the time he's just kind of gliding by on charm. Like it just sort of feels like in a lot of his movies, he's just kind of like, yeah, you want me to do the thing that I do? Okay. Yeah. I'll do that for you. you yeah. Know? But, but in that he's actually like giving a dramatic performance. He won the Oscar. Right, right, right. Yeah. And he, candy asses, he calls them candy yeah. asses. Candy asses. 
Um, I can't do. I wish I could do a James Coburn imitation. He says ass a lot in The Last of Sheila. Yeah. He says, what does he say? Get your buns out of here. (laughs) Get your buns out of here before the other dodos get in here. I can't do the voice. (laughs) That was pretty close. Tiny islands fascinate my ass. (laughs) I want to mention one other significant Coburn performance in Sergio Leone's Duck You Sucker, a.k.a. A Fistful of Dynamite. Oh, yeah. Where he has an Irish accent. (laughs) Right. That's like a teeth. That's a competition of teeth between him and Rod Steiger. Yeah. (laughs) They're both (laughs) just doing these rictus grins throughout the entire thing. And chomping on cigars, as he also is in uh, Last of Sheila. That is a that is a manic film for sure, and the one of the best Morricone soundtracks too. Oh my god! But yeah, so Coburn is like about as seventies an actor as you can get, and <laughs> around nineteen seventy six or so is when things start to go downhill for Coburn. <laughs> he started like Firepower with OJ Simpson, and uh, yeah, he he came up to Canada to do a. Canadian tax shelter movie called uh, Mr. Patman with Kate Nelligan. <laughs> right. So this was a film that you could find absolutely no evidence of. <laughs> yeah. I was looking around for it. I couldn't find it. Anything. It was a gala at the 1980 Toronto film festival. And uh, uh, it was basically, it went over very badly and then it was buried. And yeah. then a few years later, Kate Nelligan gave an interview where she just trashed the Canadian film industry. That's an incredible dressing down of an entire like industry. <laughs> Like I was saying to you beforehand, like people don't really tell it like it is like that anymore. (laughs) It's so sort of over the top and harsh, but I love it. The Canadian film industry is a joke and we Canadians should be ashamed of it. We passed a silly law to keep out American film professionals from whom we might've learned something and to assure that every incompetent film person in Canada could have a job. What we got were horribly incompetent people in top jobs, drunk most of the time, who went to Hollywood and got completely taken in by every agent in town, and in turn screwed every dentist in Canada out of $5,000 in tax shelter investments. The boom seems to be over now. It was such a monstrous waste of time and money. I can say all that stuff because, of course, I'm Canadian. (laughs) Harsh. Good for her. (laughs) I know. (laughs) But it's such a... It's like considering the fact that the tax shelter era has become this sort of beloved uh, thing now in the minds of, you know, a lot of film fans. It's, uh, it's such a like, uh, overly harsh indictment. But, you know, there'll never be a a reclaiming of stuff like middle age crazy with Bruce Dern. (laughs) I don't know about that one. (laughs) I'll send you the trailer. Oh God. Another uh, member of the cast is Joan Hackett who is probably the least familiar to audiences now yeah. of the cast. Yeah. And she's really great in the, like she's kind of the only sympathetic character in the, in the movie really. And she's significantly the only person who's not in the film world. Yeah. She's not in Hollywood. She's an heiress. She's Richard Benjamin's wife in the movie. Yeah. We discover that he's really only married her for her money through the course of the movie. She was in the movie, the group directed by Sidney Lumet which is actually pretty underrated. Uh, also starring Candace Bergen, Shirley Knight and Jessica Walter. And it's about a group of eight young women who graduate from a prestigious uh, Ivy league school. And then their lives start falling apart and just sort of the, all the things that happen to them over the course of the next 10 years or whatever. It's based on a novel by Mary McCarthy. It's just a, uh, it's a really like, you know, you could tell it was made very quickly in some of the 
a rear screen projection and stuff like that looks kind of hokey, but it's, it's really well written and uh, well acted. And, uh, oh yeah. And she's also in a movie with a TV movie with Anthony Perkins called how awful about Alan, which I just saw on uh, YouTube, which is really good. It's directed by Curtis Harrington and it's this kind of David Lynch, like psychological horror movie with all of these very disturbing mini sequences of like Anthony Perkins, uh, psychological breakdown. Another uh, couple of things about Joan Hackett. She was uh, married to Richard Mulligan, who was also in Scavenger Hunt with Richard Benjamin. And she died of cancer, sadly, in 1983. So she never got to have the late career resurgence that some of the others had. And that may be partly why she's not as familiar to us now. Yeah, she's very good in The Last of Sheila. But Mm -hmm. uh, Joan Hackett being cast in this movie is another indicator of the sort of slightly uh, mean sense of humor of Sondheim and Perkins because they wanted these sort of uh, people on the downward slide in their careers were cast as these sort of people who were sort of on the downward slide in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. I mean, these were good roles for good actors, but they were, they were cast for their significance in terms of where they were on the Hollywood food chain too. Right. Right. So, you know, Hackett is like a, a perfect choice uh, in that respect too, because she was in stuff like the group and you know, that was, that was a movie that made stars out of a few actresses in the film, but not her. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, next is, uh, one of our favorite actors of all time, James Mason. Yes, indeed. Uh, as Philip Dexter, the director in the movie, he's a director who is, uh, he mentions at one point that I worked with Gabo. <laughs> he he name drops Greta Garbo while he's filming a dog food commercial with children or something. The the film insinuates that this was a once great director who is now reduced to making uh, TV commercials, right. and he's supposedly based on two directors. I uh-huh. presume one of them is Orson Welles, right? I also presume the other one could be Godard. Ah, uh. because Godard in the early seventies was doing TV commercials. Oh, right. Right. So that I was, was how wondering, he financed the, all of his that's how he books. financed his movies. He made TV commercials. I, I mean, I, there's nothing particularly Godardian about this director. So, mm-hmm. but I was trying to, uh, I was trying to think of an American major American filmmaker who was now down on his luck and making TV commercials. Right. Right. He was born in 1909 and died in 1984. So he was 64 at the time of this movie and uh, just some of his, his interesting, uh, some factoids about his, his career, his earliest credit was 1935 and his last credit was 1985. So he was in movies for 50 years. Uh, he worked with the great Max Ophels twice in uh, when he was in Hollywood in caught and the reckless moment, which are both amazing films. But then the list of directors that he worked with is, is incredible. So Carol Reed, odd man out, Vincent Minnelli, Madame Bovary, Joseph L. Mankiewicz, Julius Caesar, George Cooker, A Star is Born, Richard Fleischer, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, and Mandingo, Nicholas Ray, Bigger Than Life, Hitchcock, North by Northwest, Kubrick, Lolita, uh, Anthony Mann, The Fall of the Roman Empire, Sidney Lumet, The Deadly Affair, The Seagull, and The Verdict, Michael Powell, Age of Consent, John Huston, The Macintosh Man, Sam Peckinpah, Cross of Iron, Warren Beatty and Buck Henry, Heaven Can Wait, Franklin J. Schaffner, The Boys from Brazil, Canada's own Bob Clark, Murder by Decree, uh, in which he played Watson to Christopher Plummer's Holmes, and of course, Andrew V. McLaughlin, the director of Folks, 
and Guy Hamilton, Evil Under the Sun. Uh, <laughs> and then there's certain films that have to be intoned in the in the Mason voice. Pandora and the Flying Dutchman. <laughs> Which I've never seen. That's supposed to be uh, quite insane. Journey to the center of the earth. <laughs> the marriage go round. The blue Max. Georgie girl. And kill, 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 kill. <laughs> Original title, kill. And finally, Yellowbeard. He, I, I know you've already mentioned the Macintosh man, but that's another title <laughs> that sounds good when you say it in the voice of James Mason. <laughs> like he's kind of like he's, you can tell that he's kind of toned down his Masonisms in this movie a bit. Like he sounds a bit like he's, he's not quite doing, he's not quite giving them the spin that they wrote. The, <laughs> they wrote the lines obviously so that he would do the Mason voice for it, but he's kind of toned it down a bit, mm-hmm. you know? So he's kind of like, we won't, we won't have any of that. He's also uh, significantly older than all of the other characters in the, yeah, in the yeah. film. And at the beginning of the movie, when he gets the invitation to go on this cruise, his wife uh, distinctly turns down the invite. Said, shall I tell them that we're going? <laughs> oh, all right. I'll tell them I'm going or whatever. Yeah. Like. <laughs> shall I go? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> uh, he's so amazing. Uh, another interesting factoid, uh, his son from his first marriage, Morgan Mason, is married to Belinda Carlisle of the Go-Go's. Oh, yeah, I know. You know? Yeah, I knew this. Uh, I was like, I mean, too bad that maybe that's why James Mason died. I went to a Go-Go's concert. <laughs> I performed a song called Head Over Heels. <laughs> Oh Our lips are sealed. <laughs> <laughs> the actor in this movie who was probably least famous at the time for American audiences certainly was Ian McShane, who became a bigger star later. Right. So, yeah, I had no idea who he was in 1988, that's for sure. And I probably didn't really notice him until sort of Deadwood, I guess, <clears throat> in which he plays an American. Uh, I didn't even realize he was British, like when I was watching Deadwood. Well, Ian McShane also makes a pretty big impression in Sexy Beast. Yeah, yeah, and I remember thinking, "Who's that guy?" Like he's because <laughs> he was the sort of final boss in uh, in Sexy Beast, right after after the demise of uh, Ben Kingsley. Yeah, and he's just the most overly tanned, disgusting looking tan. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and greasy hair. Oh, he's such a good actor. Though. He's amazing. Yeah, so he was born in 1942. So he was 31 at the time. He was kind of the youngest of the cast. And yeah, he, he was sort of, he kind of looked like Keith Moon at this point. Like he had this sort of Keith Moon haircut, was wearing a lot of like t-shirts with Mickey Mouse on them and, and stuff like that. Like he had this particular look of like 73 young guys. He was kind of like the face of swinging London in the 60s. He was already in, um, if it's Tuesday, this must be Belgium. And uh, he was also in quite a good one with Richard Burton called Villain. That was kind yes. of a, a Get Carter esque uh, uh, crime British crime drama with Richard Burton in a very gritty role. Yeah, when I was younger, I thought of McShane as kind of like the off brand Oliver Reed. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and and he was also I I had a sort of grudge against Ian McShane when I was younger too because he was on Lovejoy on A and E, which was one of these sort of. Mystery shows that is, you know, maybe some of my listeners loved Lovejoy, but I didn't. 
I think he did a lot of direct address in it. Uh, and he had a horrible mullet. This in was in too. the 80s? The late 80s, early 90s. Uh-huh. But a used to show Lovejoy all the time. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so he, he kind of became a television actor at a certain point, and uh, and that's where he like eventually found his new audience after doing Deadwood. And then, yeah, then he had a sort of career Renaissance later. Like he started getting marquee parts when he was like in his sixties. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's great. And the John wick films, American horror story and American gods. Yes. Filmed here in Toronto. And uh, so, you know, everybody loves Ian McShane now, but in 1973, he was sort of like the mystery member of the cast for Americans, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, another interesting factoid about him, he attended the uh, RADA, the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art, at the same time as Anthony Hopkins and John Hurt, and he was John Hurt's uh, roommate. Wow. So they were lifelong friends. The final main member of the cast is Raquel Welch, who plays an actress, a bombshell sort of actress. Right. The wife of the Ian McShane character. Yeah, he's her manager slash husband. Um, and I believe that um, Perkins and Sondheim based all of these characters on actual people. But the funny thing about the Raquel Welch character is that she's playing herself. They based the character on Raquel Welch. Right, right. And and she's good in it. Like mm-hmm. she, I I think like it's a it's a good performance. And like I don't know, she she sort of the scenes where she's doing the sort of. Um, talking to the off screen person. There's quite a few scenes where she's speaking to someone off screen and that, that, that sort of, I don't know, brings about the mystery of the film in a good way. Have you got the shoplifter card? That'd be ironic. What card do you have? Please tell me, tell me, tell me, please. So she was, uh, she was born in 1940. So she's 33 at the time of this film. She was in fantastic voyage. That was kind of her breakthrough. And then 1 million years BC, which I didn't realize was a hammer studios film Mm. and bedazzled the magic Christian and Myra Breckenridge. Uh, she auditioned for the role of Marianne on Gilligan's Island, but didn't get it. Wow. Too bad. Um, yeah, so these were the, the kinds of things that were written about her at the time. The New York Times said of her in One Million Years BC that she was a marvelous breathing monument to womankind. So, <laughs> so she had deliberately like sought a career as a sex symbol and she she attained it, but she wasn't entirely happy with you know the result, I guess. As, as yeah, and she got raked over the coals for Myra Breckenridge too. Right, right. Because that was meant to be sort of a more, a, a film that addressed serious things in a comical way, but it was regarded as sort of tonally off. Right. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's very hateful. Yeah. That's, that's the word I would describe to you. Yeah. Meyer Breckenridge, <laughs> very contemptuous right. film. Um, you know, even Gore Vidal, uh, didn't want to be credited for it. Oh, right. Okay. I- so Raquel Welch, uh, she started trying to act in the early seventies and to be in real movies. Mm-hmm. Like she made a concerted effort Mm-hmm. She was in a movie called Kansas City Bomber, where she played a roller skating, a roller derby uh, athlete. That All right. was yeah. well received. It's a pretty good movie. Mm-hmm. And then she did The Last of Sheila, working with you know legit actors and as part of an ensemble cast. But apparently, she was difficult to work with. And yeah. I have a juicy quote from James Mason. <laughs> After the movie was done, James Mason said Raquel Welch was quote 
the most selfish, ill-mannered, inconsiderate actress that I have ever had the displeasure of working with. <laughs> and you can see he's pissed off at her in that one shot of them on the little boat uh, as it drives towards the, uh, you know, as they're, as they're taking off on the smaller boat towards Nice. You can see him, like, just looking like he can barely stand to be sitting next to her. Let's uh, double back a little bit because I want to talk about one other strange thing about this movie. The, the Sondheim wrote it with Anthony Perkins. Yeah. And I read that Anthony Perkins based the Richard Benjamin character on himself, a closeted married man. Uh-huh. Interesting. Which and, – and Perkins got married around this time, I believe, right, right. around 72, 73. But – and Richard Benjamin, as you mentioned earlier, and Paul Apprentice talked Anthony Perkins into uh, gay conversion therapy. Right. Okay. So let's talk about that because this is really strange and interesting. He married uh, Berinthia Barry Berenson, the younger sister of Marissa Berenson, um, after undergoing a form of conversion therapy with a celebrity psychiatrist named Mildred Newman, who had written a book, a best selling book called How to Be Your Own Best Friend. And later on, uh, Sondheim described uh, Mildred Newman as completely unethical and a danger to humanity. And her her views were that homosexuality was a form of arrested development. Um, this is a quote from Wikipedia. In his 2021 biography of Mike Nichols, uh, this is um, Mark Harris, the author of um, Pictures at a Revolution, the f- book that was name-checked in a recent episode of your podcast. Uh he wrote that Perkins and his longtime boyfriend Grover Dale had both become convinced that their homosexuality was obstructing their happiness and wanted to restart their lives with women. Adding that Newman and her husband partner, Bernard Berkowitz clung to the belief that male homosexuality was a form of arrested development and made a small fortune convincing willing clients that it was an impediment to getting what they wanted. And her psychiatric treatments included electroshock. So while they were writing this uh, film, um, he was undergoing this and uh, Sondheim said that he had to sort of, you know, Perkins would be so worn out from this treatment that he would, they would go for walks together and he would basically use him as a crutch because he was so, uh, you know, physically devastated by this electroshock therapy. And so he he married uh, uh, Barry Berenson. They had two sons, both of whom have have become uh, prominent uh, people in show business. Oz Perkins, a film director, and Elvis Perkins, a musician. And they remained married until his death in 1992 of AIDS-related causes. And she actually died on 9-11. She was on board American Airlines Flight 11, the plane that crashed into the North Tower of the World Trade Center. So that's another crazy detail. And, and, and Perkins, um, he was a gay man in the fifties and sixties and his sexuality was, was every, it was an open secret in Hollywood, but, but Mm -hmm. they really tried to, um, tone it down and, and they always made Perkins go on dates with women. And they really, they were really worried when they were promoting psycho Mm -hmm. that people would find out that he was gay. Well, he he was forcibly separated from, from his longtime partner who was uh, tab hunter mm-hmm. and all of that didn't come out until sort of 2015 or something when tab hunter uh, wrote his book there, there's one other crazy detail i have to tell you so his his long-term partner uh, grover dale who he was with from 1964 to 71 
uh, went into conversion therapy with Mildred Newman at the same time as him. And he also married a woman, Anita Morris, in 1973. She was a Broadway star, uh, days apart from from uh, Perkins. So they both decided to do it at the same time and both ended up, you know, getting married and having heterosexual lives. By all accounts, uh, Perkins uh, uh, was happily married, though. Mm-hmm. Like, the, his children describe their upbringing as a fairly normal and happy upbringing. Yeah, and he was a devoted father. Perkins mm-hmm. may not have been faithful, mm-hmm. but Perkins gave it the old college try, as I like to say. You know, like, mm-hmm. they, they made a go of it. But I was very disturbed to hear that um, Perkins ever went through anything like this. Yeah, yeah. No, it's uh, shocking to hear that. We've gone on Digressions City on this show, but I do want to talk for a few minutes about the director of this movie, Herbert Ross. Oh, yes. Who has a very interesting career. He directed 24 feature films, very strange filmography starting, and he was um, a Broadway director before that. Yeah. He was a choreographer first. And an actor. Yeah. And then he and then he transitioned into uh, stage direction and then eventually into motion pictures. But um, you couldn't really have a Herbert Ross film festival that would make any sense, you know? Right, right. Okay, <laughs> so here's, here's some of his filmography. So before The Last of Sheila, he made Goodbye, Mr. Chips, which was a bomb. The Owl and the Pussycat with George Siegel and Barbara Streisand, which was a big hit. Uh T.R. Baskin, which we have to talk about. Yeah. And played again, Sam, with Woody Allen. And then afterwards, he directed Funny Lady, The Sunshine Boys, The Turning Point, The Goodbye Girl, which we'll talk about that in a second. California Sweet, Pennies from Heaven, which is a movie I love. Footloose, Protocol, The Secret of My Success, Steel Magnolias, My Blue Heaven, and Boys on the Side. Yeah. But like it's a real hodgepodge. There's nothing. Yeah. Uh, the only sort of uh, through line that you can find is that he did five Neil Simon products, and he, uh, he tended did, to do stuff that that had some some musical element. Yeah, he did um, the Goodbye Girl, California Suite. I ought to be in pictures with bearded Walter Matthau, <laughs> and Max Dugan Returns, which I used to love making fun of that title. <laughs> yeah, that's. I watched that movie. It's not very good. No, but but he Max but, Dugan returns is like total 1983 CBS Fox home video kind of movie title. <laughs> yeah, I can see the I can see the VHS uh, art for that. Uh, right after Max Dugan returns, he just sort of seems to be like digging a hole of doing Neil Simon stuff, and then all of a sudden he made Footloose, yeah. which was a giant hit. And then he had this whole resurgence, yeah. So he he kind of was able to pivot and and survive through many different eras of filmmaking. When we think about you know directors and uh, their achievements in terms of award season, it's pretty impressive that Francis Ford Coppola and Steven Soderbergh directed two of the five nominees that year for Best Picture in their respective years. But so did Herbert Ross. He wasn't nominated twice as a director. But in 1977, two of the five nominees for Best Picture were directed by Herbert Ross. The Goodbye Girl, which won the Oscar for Richard Dreyfuss, and The Turning Point, which was famously nominated for 11 Oscars that year and won zero. Oh, wow. So, and he was nominated as a director for The Turning Point. But, but the, the Turning you know. Point is the one with Shirley MacLaine running a dance school in the Midwest. 
I believe so. She's like yeah. a former Broadway person who's come, you know, who's, who's left the showbiz world and is now like somewhere in the flyover country, like running a dance school. It's really good. Actually. It's really good. Chris, have you ever watched uh, the goodbye girl? Oh yes. That movie is cringe. <laughs> yeah. Dreyfus in that movie is like nails on a blackboard for me. Oh yeah. His speech that he gives. Yeah. Yeah. I like to take showers every morning and I don't like the panties drying on the rod. I like to cook, so I will use the kitchen whenever I damn well please. And I am very particular about my condiments, so keep your salt and pepper to yourself. Plus, I play the guitar in the middle of the night whenever I cannot sleep, and I meditate every morning, complete with chanting and burning incense, so if you've got to walk around, I'd appreciate a little tiptoeing. Also, I sleep in the nude. A buffo. Winter and summer, rain or snow, with the windows open. And because I may have to go to the potty or to the fridge in the middle of the night, and because I don't want to put on jammies, which I do not own in the first place, unless you're looking for a quick thrill or your daughter in advanced education, I would keep my door closed. Them's my rules and regulations. How does that grab you? I just watched Marsha Mason and uh, James Caan in another movie, another Neil Simon movie called chapter two from 1979. I love these, these sort of bougie movies because of the art direction. I, I just want to live in the movies. You know what I mean? Like the, that yeah. the places that they live in the sort of art directed spaces that they live in have a, have a certain nostalgia for me, but yeah, it's, it's not very, not very good. And James Caan has the most like petulant, um, he just plays the most petulant, uh, character and, uh, treats her in a way that would be completely unacceptable now. Another fun fact about Herbert Ross is that, um, he replaced Michael Cimino in pre-production for Footloose. Cimino was the original oh. director, but he got, he, <laughs> he got fired. It was, that was, that was originally Cimino's comeback vehicle was footloose but apparently his budget overruns were already getting so frightening in pre-production that they just replaced him can you imagine the michael cimino directed footloose (laughs) (laughs) that would be insane a music like he directs a musical that's something i would have liked to see actually yeah but then we would have never got year of the dragon no that's true it all worked out and (laughs) i quite like herbert ross's version of pennies from heaven the american mm-hmm. version mm-hmm. of the dennis potter series yeah, yeah that's a too. that's a very very good movie i think oh yeah it's like one of the best bernadette peters performances and also one of the best steve martin performances and, and steve martin had to learn to dance for it and mm-hmm. said that he spent like six months in agony because he, mm-hmm. he he was dance training for eight hours a day or whatever i appreciate it because it is very dark for mm. a you know American musical, uh, it it goes to some pretty dark places. I think like they yeah. did not uh, sanitize it too much yeah. in the translation, and it yeah. also has that wonderful Christopher Walken one scene wonder, right? Yeah, where he plays the sort of dance hall guy who's so sleazy, and that's one of the only movies where he gets to really show off his dance chops, right? Yeah, yeah. But um, I want to talk. Th- for a few minutes, though, on one more side trip about Herbert <laughs> Ross, yeah. I, I forced you to watch a movie that he made just before The Last of Sheila that I had always wanted to see, mm-hmm. uh, a comedy drama, a very small one that's very obscure now, called mm-hmm. T.R. Baskin. Yeah, starring Candace Bergen, Peter Boyle, and James Caan. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a really weird film, and uh, I don't know, it seems like 
Hollywood was trying to sort of make a lot of these quasi countercultural films at the time uh, where it was like, it was going to be hip with the grown up audience and the kids or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like that was kind of the, the intent. And it sort of felt like a movie where Herbert Ross could show, you see, I can direct a studio picture. Like I can make a normal looking uh, studio picture that also has some countercultural content. And um, the title character played by Candace Bergen is a sort of socially awkward, wisecracking young woman who comes from her small town of o- in Ohio to uh, Chicago and gets a job at a very dehumanizing uh, uh, IBM like. Uh, it seems to like a gigantic typing pool. Yeah. Uh, you know, like, and there's a, a very well constructed shot of just looks like a quarter mile of desks very yeah. uh, reminded me of uh of um the desk the offices in the apartment but it also yeah. reminded me of the crowd by king vidor just this oh, like yeah. soul destroying <laughs> <laughs> room full of people at typewriters all typing at the same time and you have no idea what they're actually doing yeah and it was written by peter hyams uh who later went on to become a director mostly of sci-fi movies in the eighties, but uh, mm-hmm. I guess he got his start um, as a writer and uh, uh, making these kind of small human stories. It was sometimes very overwritten, which is one hallmark of Peter Hyams that every character talks like a Peter Hyams character. Yeah. The, the other thing about uh, watching TR Baskin was the, the file that you sent me was a, a, a telecine transfer of a 16 millimeter print of the film that was really hacked. Yeah. And it just reminded me of like how every movie w- looked on television in the seventies because they were all done through this process. That was not that great. And mostly I- any scene where, you know, that took place at night or whatever, you could barely see what was going on. <laughs> Yeah, you can rent you can rent a proper transfer of it uh, on YouTube, I believe, for two ninety nine. But I was able to find a download uh, of it. <laughs> I don't recommend downloading. That's you right. wouldn't download a car. Piracy is a crime. <laughs> but I don't think anyone's going to arrest me for illegally downloading T.R. Baskin. Yeah, right. <laughs> and you were so, saying that it, it took a very long time to download, meaning you were the I only took, person. Uh, <laughs> I took like a week. <laughs> For me to finally get the file. And then when I got it, it was like a 16 millimeter telecine and it looked like shit, but it kind of added to the, my enjoyment of it because a movie like TR Baskin would have been on at three in the morning on city TV when I was a kid from a 16 millimeter uh, transfer. The problem with TR Baskin is it has this framing device where she now seems to be a call girl who is going to Peter Boyle's hotel room because he got her number and she's supposed to be a nice girl and she agrees to go to his hotel. And then she tells the story of her life. So most of the movie is an extended flashback sequence. So that kills all the momentum for the movie. Yeah. 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 That was, that was not a good choice that, that structure, but the Peter Boyle, the interaction between her and Peter Boyle was, was pretty, you know, still interesting. And also her friendship with uh, James Caan was interesting too. And he plays a sort of nerdy character in it as well, which is interesting. Yeah. But then he does a heel turn where he's sort of a nerdy character, but then uh, he leaves her money uh, right, in her pocket she, because she, he, she realizes that he thinks that she's a sex worker. Right. Right. 
And that's what I mean about Peter Hyams making this movie that is sort of a female protagonist and following her life and sympathizing with what she's going through, but then putting her in the tropes that she's a sex worker. Yeah. Yeah. That felt a bit forced. But I, it was interesting because it was like, a, I thought it was a noble attempt at, uh, at uh, making a, a, a film with a sort of winsome um, and likable and, uh, female protagonist who you want to uh you want her to do well and Candace Bergen is very good as an actress in this movie too yeah yeah, she's got a real knock is that she wasn't during her sort of youth in the 70s people used to say that she couldn't act Mm -hmm. but she seemed like the kind of person you've met that's what I liked about her yeah yeah she was pretty relatable yeah as they say the games that Stephen Sondheim and Tony Perkins conceived in Manhattan are being played out on the French Riviera by their friend, Herb Ross, in locations that seem innocent in their context. In their hands and minds, however, the seemingly innocent can suddenly assume the aura of fear and murder in The Last of Sheila. Let's talk about the plot of The Last of Sheila. It's worth noting that six of the seven main characters represent a different area of film industry production. We've got an actress, a producer, a director, a star manager, a talent agent, and a screenwriter. The movie is very, very complex, and it's been rigorously thought out. Like, you can tell that Sondheim and Perkins are huge fans of mysteries, and, like, they've really, really thought this movie out. Like, when you start reconstructing what happened in your mind, you realize how (laughs) airtight everything is. (laughs) Yeah, everything has been designed to have multiple layers uh, so that you really uh, get a satisfying experience from watching it the first time and also from subsequent viewings because you see so many more of the, you know, each each uh, scene has been shown in such a way that if you already know the ending, it, it is more, um, it has more uh, details to reveal. So the the film opens on the night of the last night of Sheila Green's life, and she's played by Yvonne Romain, who had appeared in Hammer films, and the the movie has like quite a connection to the Hammer horror uh, genre, which I hadn't realized until I saw it this time for the podcast. Uh, she was in Curse of the Werewolf uh, and and other Hammer films, and she is married to James Coburn. They are fighting at a Bel Air party. She leaves the party on foot. She gets hit by a car. A drunk driver? Possibly. But the driver backs up and takes a look at the dead body shown in grisly close-up. She's wearing a sky-blue dress and a giant S pendant. The sound effects are harsh and sudden. The whole opening seems to declare that we are in for a distinctly unpleasant experience. Uh, Dissolved to a giant yacht with the name Sheila on the side as the title appears. Crosswords, jigsaw puzzles, and other boutique-style 70s puzzles and games, including board games, are shown under the opening titles as we hear Coburn's typewriter. Coburn leans back in his chair and blows a giant cigar smoke ring. (laughs) And he has this huge cat that ate the canary grin on his face. (laughs) Throughout the, yeah, he does a lot of grinning in in this movie teeth a lot of tooth acting uh richard benjamin and joan hackett's characters are introduced tom and lee parkman he is a once prominent screenwriter now only being entrusted with rewrites and she is a wealthy heiress they receive clinton's invitation to spend a week on his yacht and tom hopes that this will be his big opportunity to work with clinton again but lee tells him not to get his hopes up Diane Cannon's character, Christine, is introduced next. She is a high-powered Hollywood agent based on Sue Menger's Diane Cannon's real-life agent. 
at the end of a phone call, she intones, I just lost 50 pounds. I'm a hollow reed. Kiss, kiss. (laughs) (laughs) One of many amazing lines in this movie. James Mason's Philip is introduced next. He is directing a commercial for Boffer's Doggo Meat in Rich Gravy, featuring five little girls sitting on top of giant dog food cans. Settle down, please, everyone. He receives an invitation via phone call. Oh, yeah. So that's his instruction to the to the cast. Settle down, please, everyone. And he's also got uh, little kids on his knee as well. And he's like, right, yeah. I, I'll have to go because my young actress has just peed on my lap. Something Greta Garbo <laughs> never did or something like that. It's so ridiculous. Uh, and then Ian McShane and Raquel Welch are introduced. These are the last characters to be introduced. Anthony and Alice Wood. They are another power couple. She is an actress wrapping a film in Rome and he is her producer fixer. As they leave Rome airport, they are mobbed by press and would be sponsors. McShane violently smashes a guy to the ground for trying to give Welsh a liquor bottle. Uh, She's not known for to be the most emotionally deep on-screen presence, but I find her pretty good in this. Uh, you know, she was she was someone who was typecast early on and not really given a chance to prove herself. Yeah, it sort of feels like that was kind of the arc of her career. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, on his yacht, Coburn prepares his game and grins evilly. The guests arrive in the south of France. He takes a photo of them in front of the boat under the letters Sheila that will be so important to the plot of the game. Extreme close-up of Coburn's face, all teeth and mirrored shades as he takes the photo. Doesn't he insult them too? He says, oh, he's constantly insulting them. Yeah. (laughs) He says like a bunch of washouts. Kidding. Yeah, so, so then in the next scene, the Sheila Green Memorial Gossip Game is introduced. It has been a year since Sheila's death. There are six cards, each one bearing a secret. We don't see them all at first, but the six secrets are you are a dot, 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 shoplifter, alcoholic, homosexual, ex-convict, informant, little child molester, hit-and-run killer. On the first night, they have the scavenger hunt to discover the identity of the holder of the shoplifter card. They go into the town... Uh, They have each been given a key and have to discover the hotel room, uh, which the key opens. Richard Benjamin discovers it first. When he opens the door, the room is filled with clues and a TV set is on. In one room, he finds a dummy holding a bottle of Chanel number five. Coburn startles him by yelling, don't touch the dummy, dummy. And then hurries him along. Figure out what happened and get your buns out of here before one of the other dodos comes in. Tick tock, tick tock. When Richard Benjamin starts thinking out loud, he just goes, yawn. <laughs> the thing about Coburn in this movie, he's such a fucking asshole in every yeah. scene. Yeah. Yeah. Like you can see why they all want him dead. But then when he actually dies, it's it sort of like, oh, you know, the, the balloon uh, deflates a bit. Uh, finally, uh, Richard Benjamin figures out that the bottle of Chanel number five means turn the TV to channel five, which has a closed circuit documentary program revealing James Mason as the shoplifter. Meanwhile, Raquel Welch is waiting at a bar and meets someone whose identity is concealed. Uh, so she has a conversation with them. She confesses that she is the real shoplifter. Uh, we realize the cards are each revealing some embarrassing detail about the person's past, but have been given to the wrong people. He, she has the homosexual card. She shows it to the off-screen person. Thought of you, darling. Then there is a scene between Mason and Joan Hackett where they are overheard by Richard Benjamin. Uh, 
This is one of the lines that seems specifically geared towards Mason. If a glass of second-rate brandy at this hour may excuse a certain tactlessness, why don't you simply dip into capital and produce your own picture? (laughs) So the next day, the boat is sitting at anchor. Uh, Ian McShane tries to get Coburn to sign him on as a producer for the projected Last of Sheila film to to star Raquel Welch as Sheila. Coburn rebuffs him by doing this insane cry laughing routine. Boo hoo. Oh, boo hoo hoo. Oh, boo hoo 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 hoo. He does, <laughs> he does this cry laughing thing as he walks away. Raquel Welch tries to make it up to him as he puts on his scuba diving outfit, but he cheerfully rebuffs her too and dives into the water. Diane Cannon lies on an air mattress in the water and demands that someone shoot me down a can of tab. Uh, Coburn surfaces in his scuba gear and starts taunting each one of them individually from the water, which they can all hear from inside their rooms. Jesus, go back to sleep, Lee, he says to Joan Hackett. (laughs) (laughs) Meanwhile, an unknown saboteur, like the one who encountered Welch in the previous scenes, uh, we see it from his, their point of view, turns on the boat's propellers. We get this Jaws-like shot of the air mattress from below the water shot through the propeller and then from various angles while a jaws like electronic theme plays. So this is a bit of prefiguring here because mm-hmm. it's two years before jaws. By the way, the music by Billy Goldenberg is excellent throughout and provides just the right tone of trashy grandeur. He also did the music for duel Spielberg connection there, uh, played again, Sam up the sandbox, Ruben, Ruben and 18 again, <laughs> <laughs> and an absolute ton of TV work. Uh, So the propeller goes on. Christine is almost sucked under the boat, but one of the crew members switches it off in time. Ian McShane dives into the water and rescues her. Disturbing shot of Diane Cannon laughing hysterically as she is pulled up the stairs and onto the boat. She lurches toward the camera screaming, oh, look at me. I got a new hairstyle. Screams. Mason tries to help her. Get me a glass of water and a couple of lesbians. A recurring theme. And, and starts laughing again. Yeah, this, this part is, is, is quite uh, unsettling because she, the camera is very close to her face and she lurches towards the camera as she's laughing uncontrollably and uh, having just had her life saved. Well, it also f- reminded me a little bit of Maidstone. Like it just seemed to be like this sort of freak <laughs> yeah. out that they managed to get on film. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Maidstone. That's a good, uh, good poll there. Uh, um, Coburn emerges from the water and upbraids the head crew member, Vittorio, severely. Listen, Gummo, you got some explaining to do. <laughs> he calls the propellers egg beaters and gives, the whole, gives a whole overwritten speech that somehow works. Mason and Benjamin start playing detective, talking like characters in a whodunit. According to the rules of the genre, Mason says at this point. Coburn emerges in an orange sweater and takes over the proceedings. Orders Vittorio to get Benjamin two blues and a purple. <laughs> he orders painkillers for him, but, but the way he says it is two blues with the purple stripe for his back pain. <laughs> Benjamin tries to beg off playing the game. Oh, Jesus, I'd really hate that, he says, while stroking the side of his face like a child. Just want to say the other thing that Coburn says to Benjamin when Benjamin's begging off, he says, well, you'll have to be ready for Saturday. That's your big night. That's right. Which we later find out is uh, Richard Benjamin's way of extracting the information from him, which night is going to be the night his secret is revealed. Yeah. 
he is in a smaller boat being lowered into the water while he gives a whole speech. Tiny, tiny islands fascinate my ass. <laughs> as, as I mentioned before, he says he reads brochures his estate agent gives him about tiny islands for sale. A few thousand dollars and you're practically king to six shepherds and their families or whatever. <laughs> then he takes them and tears them in half. No, you poor people. You don't deserve a good king like me. All the while doing his exaggerated grin. The boat drives off. Three hours to magic time. Bye-bye. <laughs> With a megaphone? I think so. Coburn is having the best time. <laughs> he comes back and throws them the brochures with the megaphone, and that's when he, he, he intones his next, uh, his next great lines because they're about to go to a deserted monastery. So he comes back on the small boat and throws a bundle of clues to the waiting subjects, and someone asks, which one are we doing tonight? The homosexual, <laughs> which is strangely how everyone in the movie pronounces the word. And James Mason says, in a monastery, where else? <laughs> he leans back and laughs, showing a full rictus grin. They read the brochures he has given them with fake text, obviously written by Clinton. Richard Benjamin and Joan Hackett suddenly remember Raquel's, Raquel Welch's shoplifting incident. That's when they start to realize that the clues are mixed up and the game is more real than they might have imagined. The saboteur comes in while Benjamin is in the shower. We see his cart hit and run killer in the monastery. We see Coburn light a candle and dangle a tape recorder down a well on a rope. They come in. It's rather like a hammer film. There are fake thunder sounds and monks chanting. They try to locate Clinton by following the source of the singing, but it keeps turning out to be tape recorders with the word wrong written on them. <laughs> James Mason. I fear it's to be a costume party. <laughs> they all have to put on monk's robes. Mason finds the confessional where Coburn has installed himself. Coburn appears in the booth window in a red wig and lipstick. Ha ha, that's disgusting, but clever. He's supposed to be disguised as Raquel Welch's character. The door to the other side where the guests are supposed to come in is stuck. God damn it. Coburn gets out and tries to unstuck, unstick the door. Can I help? No, just piss off, my son. He blesses him. Richard Benjamin sees Mason emerge from the room, goes out and sees Coburn in drag. They have a conversation that seems to take place outside the game. Want to kiss me? You could use a little more rouge. The suggestion of intimacy. Richard Benjamin suggests turning up the volume of the monk's singing. Diane Cannon sees a monk-robed figure, assumed to be Clinton, wrench the confessional door open. This is the moment where repeat viewers of the film clearly see that Richard Benjamin is the murderer. She goes into the booth. Coburn's face appears in the window, but his eyes appear lifeless. In fact, he's dead and is being puppeteered by Richard Benjamin. Then we see Coburn's dead body fall out of the confessional, again very gory in a hammer-like way. Raquel Welch comes to the closed door of the confessional room, uh, tries to talk to Coburn. The sign saying the game is over slides under the door. Next morning at breakfast on the yacht, Clinton is missing. Diane Cannon. Who cares about the game at this point? Something's fluey. Where is he? They go back to the monastery and discover the body. Mason. Apparently there is a god. <laughs> McShane, shouldn't we notify the authorities? Mason, on an island with two cafes and a weaver? <laughs> he gets all the, all the great lines. Mason finds a cigarette butt with a long uh, ash. 
a vital clue, he says very sarcastically. Clinton didn't smoke cigarettes, says Richard Benjamin. They wait for the authorities to arrive. Sitting around the lounge, Raquel Welch. It's so sad. I would It would have been such a huge grocer for him, the last of Sheila. This is the third of five or six times that the title is spoken in the movie. Richard Benjamin starts to do a Poirot-like summation of the clues, signs, etc. that they've seen so far. At this point, the repeat viewer realizes that Richard Benjamin has basically hijacked Clinton's game into a larger game of his own to achieve his desired result rather than Clinton's. Clinton only wanted to embarrass each one and possibly reveal who murdered Sheila, but he wants to go even further. But at this point, he plays it very innocuously. He asks them all to produce their cards. Diane Cannon rummages through her enormous pale brown leather purse, which as a child of the 70s, I remember my mother having a very similar purse. (laughs) (laughs) They all see the cards. It was more than a game. It was a private joke, someone says. Uh, Richard Benjamin still withholds his card. Mason, do let's see your card, old boy. (laughs) (laughs) He he starts uh, forcing each person to claim their card. Okay, I'll start. He holds up the homosexual card. I had a thing with Clinton. Uh, These are all ruthlessly ambitious people who have had to hide the ways that they attained their positions, of course. So now it's all being revealed. Mm. Uh, he, re- he forces Raquel Welch to confess to shoplifter. Diane Cannon confesses to informant. She picks up the card, hello, and admits that she named names to the House Un-American Activities Committee. Uh, McShane claims the ex-convict card. I've, I've done time. This only leaves hit-and-run killer and little child molester. McShane corners Mason. You want to choose from what's left? We've got dented fenders or how about a little petting in the playground? another very literary uh, line there Hackett suddenly confesses to accidentally killing Sheila with the car she thought she'd gotten away with it in her monastery flashback she talks to the puppeteered Coburn who says he knew about the car rental place in Las Vegas where she returned the car that killed Sheila as we later realize this is actually Richard Burton saying these lines Richard Burton Richard Benjamin (laughs) saying these lines as Coburn. Richard Burton would have been great in this movie though. (laughs) So she kills in quotes Coburn in the confessional, smashing a heavy candle holder into the grill of the confessional and using a stone from the top of the column to hit him in the head. Later we find out that he was already dead by that point. And Richard Benjamin in a very throwaway scene earlier in the movie does an imitation of James Coburn. Right. And that is brought back again a bit later. Uh, So Joan Hackett says she wants to go downstairs and make a clean exit. And this is great. Incredibly great acting by Joan Hackett in the scene. Mason. Sorry, Tom, but that clean exit line bothers me. (laughs) Tom talks to Lee through the door. She says she's fine in a voice that sounds like she's not fine. A few hours later, he enters the room using the master key. She is lying on the bed with an empty bottle of Jim Beam. Mason, standing on the, by the side rail upstairs, sees the empty Jim Beam bottle hit the water. Throughout this section, he is wearing a dark purple sweatshirt and a cravat. He's always wearing purple, actually, James Mason. Uh, he gets the captain's master key and goes into the bathroom adjoining Coburn's bedroom. Here we get the most horror movie-like image of the whole film. Joan Hackett in full corpse paint with grayish blue skin and her wrists slashed. You know how some movies don't bother to really make the actors look dead sometimes if they, mm. they don't want the actor to look bad or whatever, but in this case, they really do make her look dead and it's very disturbing. 
it's ghastly. So if I had seen that as a five-year-old, I, I think that would have been incredibly disturbing. Um, then there's a little scene between McShane and Welsh. He films the shrouded body of Joan Hackett being loaded onto an ambulance with a super eight camera and pans up to Welsh. They exchange a few lines and then Welsh turns to, to Diane Cannon. Is it terrible? Just terrible to wonder if you can get a good hairdresser in this town. That's one thing that I wanted to say about the last of Sheila is that these people are really venal. Like they get over the fact that people have been found dead very quickly. Yeah. That's um, something that was pointed out by uh, Roger Ebert. I'll just uh, read you a little excerpt from his review from 1973. Cause it's, it's quite interesting. Um, it's fun to listen to their conversations, which like the talk and play it as it lays sound like dialogue because these people talk no other way. The in jokes are good too. And the movie is especially accurate in its assessment of the Hollywood attitude toward death. Hollywood is embarrassed by death and turns away from it. Real grief is seldom. So that, that's something that uh, is really put across by how crass all the characters act towards uh, the people who have died. Mason has, has seen uh, uh, Richard Benjamin talking to Raquel Welch. Goodbyes after an ocean voyage are always so sad. <laughs> Dripping with sarcasm. So he, he realizes that he's been, uh, Richard Benjamin's been having an affair with Raquel Welch. Everyone decamps for the majestic hotel except Mason. My invitation was for a week on a yacht. I didn't bring any pocket money. The crew has, has a wild night on the town. Richard Benjamin strolls along the marina at night. He sees the lights going on and off on the yacht. He finds Mason on the boat, experimenting with a cigarette butt and deducing that the only way it could have burned down the way that it did was if you stepped on the filter rather than the tobacco. It's what I went down to ask Lee about last night. Later, I dismissed it from my mind as a whim, <laughs> but, <laughs> but thought that's one of his best line readings. Uh, and then there's this kind of logic leap that it seems ex- incredibly far-fetched when you're recounting it, but it makes perfect sense within the logic of the movie. The cigarette must have been dropped deliberately in an awkward spot in the confessional, requiring Clinton to bend down to try to stamp it out and giving Benjamin enough time to stab him in the neck with the ice pick, which has been missing from the ship's bar and is also a classic woman's weapon. <laughs> <laughs> then he says, I'm just puttering my way through the debris of my rusty imagination. <laughs> okay. Okay. So, uh, and then he says, allow me, please. This is a director's cut. And then he gives his version of the events. Uh, so Benjamin killed Clinton with the ice pick. Christine and Lee saw his puppeted body with that awful faraway look in his eye. As, uh, Diane Cannon says, Lee killed a dead man and needlessly committed suicide. Richard Benjamin leaves. Mason sees the Sheila photo, starts to put it together. She was AA for a while. This is this recurring, uh, (laughs) they keep cutting to this part where Diane Cannon says, she was AA for a while, (laughs) about five times. (laughs) He said, we didn't have to move to play the game if we were smart enough. Come, come, Tom, where's that puzzled mind? So he figures out that each of the characters is standing under one of the letters of the word Sheila, and each letter corresponds to one of the cards that they've been given. And uh, he puts all the cards together, and Hit and Run Killer doesn't go with the the acronym Sheila. So that's when he realizes that the 
real card was alcoholic and hit and run was a card that was substituted by Tom to make Joan Hackett confess to the accidental murder of Sheila. So this is like a very convoluted, but this is the point that I always, by the time I've gotten to this point in the movie, I've forgotten yeah. <laughs> the intricacies of, of all this. Yeah. Because the typewriter was on the boat. So Richard Benjamin goes, he, and, and Richard Benjamin also crumples up his own card. Right, right. But then there's no crumpling on the hit and run killer card, That's which right. leads Mason to realize that that was a substitute. And as another podcast that I listened to about the film pointed out, we see the alcoholic card at the point where they all see their cards. So, so we know that one of the cards is alcoholic, like astute viewers of the film know that something's amiss there when the alcoholic card doesn't appear. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, <laughs> So he says, Lee's estate must be worth about three million. Five. <laughs> he says it very flatly, five. And then uh, Mason keeps uh, doing this whole film director's speech where he's saying, dissolve interior day. Uh, he, keeps un- <laughs> he keeps corking and uncorking a bottle of Johnny Walker Red, which I was amazed to see. They, they used to have corks. Yeah. It wasn't always a screw top. It was very classy back then. And they're drinking an extraordinary amount of scotch in this scene. Uh, he says, I'd helped Alice out of her little unpleasantness low those many years ago. <laughs> <laughs> the shoplifting. Yeah. 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 Uh, reveals that he was the one who turned on the propeller. Richard Benjamin is supposed to have done a dead on impersonation of Coburn, but it wasn't actually that good. So it's Coburn's real voice in the ventriloquist scenes. He keeps throwing darts threateningly. Mason accuses him of dosing the bourbon with secondal. Uh, Benjamin has had his back to the camera and turns around menacingly with a colorful puppet on each hand, evil electronic flourish. (laughs) And he says, I don't have any gloves. Oh, then he attacks Mason, tries to strangle him while wearing the two puppets. And while this happens, we see a flashback of him laying Lee's passed out body in Clinton's tub and slashing her wrists with a fancy pair of scissors, cigarette dangling from his mouth. This is the, this is another part that would have completely destroyed me if I'd seen it as a, child yeah it's remarkable how tense the final scene is considering it's the skinniest man you've ever seen trying to kill an old man while wearing puppets on his hands <laughs> I know. mason is saved by diane cannon coming up the stairs with a crew member she has been having sex with downstairs they heard the whole conversation on clinton's intercom system tom is cornered they end by forcing him to fund a high budget adaptation of Sheila's life. The project Clinton had ostensibly brought them all together for, for 5 million, the exact amount of Lee's estate to be written by an outsider. Tom will only be brought in for a few rewrites. Zoom in on Richard Benjamin's face, frozen in anger as Diane starts dream casting the movie. Yul Brynner as Clinton, (laughs) the co-star of Westworld, Paul and Joanne as Tom and Lee. Who have I got for Alice? Oh, I know. Carly Simon. The soundtrack album alone will pay for her clothes. So they got a little jab in it at Carly Simon there, which I love. <laughs> and and they are the cameras closing in on Richard Benjamin's expressionless but pissed off face. Utterly defeated <laughs> and just slumped in his in his chair. <laughs> and I remember the first time I saw the, the movie, I did not quite understand what had just transpired, like why they had tra- just blackmailed him into doing, basically. Yeah. Because <laughs> it, it went by so fast and it was, you know, pretty subtle for a, for a 19-year-old anyway. Well, I didn't, I didn't understand why um, 
why they weren't involving the police, but that's another indicator of how venal all these people are as they see another opportunity to monetize the situation. (laughs) Yeah. Well, um, I, you know, uh, as was pointed out on one of the other podcasts I listened to, like, this is uh, similar to the ending of murder on the Orient express where he solves the Hercule Poirot solves the, the murder, but he let, he lets everyone off. Basically he, he, he sort of says, okay, well I figured it out, but you can all go to your homes now. Uh, uh, so we hear the typewriter typing again, like at the beginning, uh, close up on the Sheila photo as the, the, uh, Bette Midler song plays. This was the first um, time that Bette Midler was in a soundtrack for a movie. Oh, really? Yeah. This was the very first use of Bette Midler in a movie. That's so interesting. Who herself went on to become a big actress. Right. Of course. Uh, That's, that's really neat. Yeah. No, I I listened to the song uh, just by itself the other day and uh, I really like it actually. Has a sort of Carol King ish ness to it. But you got to have friends The feelings are so strong You got to have friends To make that day last long I had some friends, but they're gone Something came and took them away And from the dust till... So a few interesting things from the, the credits. The DP was uh, Jerry Turpin, who also shot Morgan, The Wrong Box, The Bobo, Oh, What a Lovely War, and Young Winston. Mm-hmm. So a lot, a lot of British fare, often with Peter Sellers. Ken Adam did the production design. He of uh, Dr. Strangelove and Barry Lyndon. And, and Bond. Bond, Bond films. Uh, Joel Schumacher did the costumes, which were amazing. And... Uh, yeah, I, I've never seen this movie on film. I've only ever seen it on home video formats. So it's something that I think deserves to be uh, restored and uh, given a more deluxe treatment. Because there, there are a lot of shots that feel a bit ugly, the way that it looks right now. Yeah, and, and this film is so influential on things like Knives Out that you would think it would be a no-brainer to sort of do a proper restoration. Yeah, I feel like it's coming. I hope it is. One little fun fact about this movie, it was made in 1972. And while they were filming on location in France, they got a death threat from a group that identified themselves as Black September, who were the same group that did the Munich massacre. And they informed the police that a bomb had been placed near the set and would be detonated. Right. So they actually um, evacuated... Then with help from the local police, they finished shooting that sequence at three in the morning. Oh, wow. So they did have a terrorism scare while they were working on this movie. Cause I guess there were enough famous people involved. Right. Right. And it was Europe in the seventies and that mm-hmm. was happening a lot. Just adding to the super seventies uh, quality of this movie <laughs> is they even had a black September threat. <laughs> <laughs> it wouldn't be a seventies movie without that. Yeah. One thing that I noticed while I was watching this movie and the changing times is that they had, you know, all the, for the most part, all the crimes and sins that people were in their past that were being revealed were all considered sort of petty stuff like, oh, you're a convict. Oh, you're a shoplifter. And then there's a little child molester. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This, this was one of the things that, um, y- you know, the, these, uh, 
podcast hosts, uh, the, the two podcasts I listened to, one was called, um, talk to me, talk classic to me. And the other one was called, um, uh, mostly murder. And the, the people hosting them were all in their thirties. And, uh, they were all super horrified by the fact that the character who gets away with it at the end is the pedophile, James Mason. And the informer, like they are the ones who who win the game essentially, and and force uh, you know they blackmail uh, Tom into doing what what they want, mm-hmm. and uh, that that's sort of like the most cynical aspect of the the ending is that um, these these are the ones who have gotten away with you know two or, or at least the James Mason character has gotten away with like the worst crime really, and uh, he he's the one who who has control at the end. But what's what I found so strange is that I don't think in 1973 uh, the movie thought that like child molestation was that big a deal. Like it's sort of, yeah, exactly. Like, like they that. seem to be sort of short shrifting that aspect of it. Like, Oh, these, petty, exactly. Yeah. These petty crimes like child molestation. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, the difference between seeing the film in 1988 and seeing it now is also kind of, you know, that's one of the things that, uh, is now very different is that that is the, the, the attitude towards uh, that has changed so much, but it's strange. It does seem strange that it was treated so lightly then now, now just to think about it more clearly and logically. Yeah. And that, and the, the movie sort of has a little fun with the idea of like, it has a scene where Mason's directing with a bunch of little kids around him. Like yeah. it's one of the most cynical aspects of this movie that hasn't aged very well. It's like, it's kind of like the treatment of rape in old movies. Like mm-hmm. when it's like, it's almost treated as a sort of fun thing almost in older movies. And it's like, when he's seeing it in the context of, you know, contemporary life, it's so horrifying that uh, they would take it so lightly. You know, it doesn't like cancel the movie for me, but it is something no. that's uncomfortable. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I chalk it up to the times in which it was made, but you know, it's a, it's a note that is a little unpleasant to sort of consider mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. And the other thing too, is that the movie doesn't really spell it out. Like there's no scene where James Mason admits to being a child molester. It's, it's, it's there to be figured out. Yeah. And he even says the line as opposed to what a big child molester. Yeah. And the word little has been added into the card to put the ac- the acrostic together of the name Sheila, which is on the side of the boat. And that's the thing that tips him off. Yeah. But again, but, with the sort of cynicism of this, of some elements of this movie is that uh, they sort of, they make a light of, of what, it, what we all now would consider to be one of the worst sins that all these characters commit. I don't think in 1973, it was considered that big a deal. Right. Right. Or it was something that was so unmentionable that it was sort of given a more, uh, light treatment than it would be later on when it was something that was more talked about and brought out into the open. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. One other thing about the sort of the denouement of this movie is that the Diane Cannon character is the informant who named names during the McCarthy era. It's the character is based on Sue Mengers, but Sue Mengers was not an informant in the McCarthy time but another talent agent in Hollywood was. So that's another little inside Hollywood uh, detail. Uh-huh. Did you know that uh, Raquel Welch almost sued Herbert Ross for assault and battery and at one point walked off the set? No. And when she came back, she had a bodyguard with her? 
Oh, really? Uh, Diane Cannon also initially didn't want to do the movie because she felt the female characters were less three-dimensional than the male characters. Um, So one of the things that she brought to the movie was giving the the characters more dimensionality. She's really good in this. Sue Mangers talked her into it. She's, she's really good in this movie, Diane. Yeah, she's brilliant. And, and I mean, so is, so is Joan Hackett. For my listeners, uh, until Criterion puts out the last of Sheila, which they should do, (laughs) it's available for rent on Amazon and iTunes. Um, hopefully you didn't listen to this episode before you, uh, have seen the last of Sheila because it really is a movie that you really, uh, it's a superior, uh, puzzle movie that, uh, also is an incredible time capsule of like what animated people in the 1970s. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. If you, if you haven't seen it, I envy you cause you're in for a major treat. Chris, before we go, I wanted to ask you about your return to live performance. Oh, well, thank you. Yes. uh, So it's now March uh, 2022, and I've done uh, two live shows in the last few months, one in November. Um, That was uh, a wavelength um, show and 918 Bathurst Street, which is a beautiful venue, um, which is now the home to the music gallery former Zen Buddhist temple. Uh, it's like a large triangular hall with a lot of wood on the inside built in the fifties, really beautiful. And then I, I also did a show in uh, February at the Monarch Tavern and, uh, yeah, it was just really, really, really nice to, uh, play music live again after 18 months. And, um, uh, we also, uh, got to play the shows with, uh, Dorothea Pass, who is, uh, singer songwriter from Toronto who uh, I did a duet with, uh, which will be on my forthcoming record diamond violence, which is coming out in October. And, um, you know, she sang live with me and, and played guitar and, uh, is just, a, a really a phenomenal performer. And, uh, you know, we sang harmony on a lot of songs and I had never really done that before. So it was just a really nice new experience. And also, uh, we got to play on Dorothea's songs at the Monarch Tavern as well, which was a really wonderful experience. And you could see that the audience was so, uh, you know, was so into the music and, uh, it was really that, that show in particular was really great because the audience was so close to the stage and we really got to, you know, feel the emotion from the audience. Was it surreal to find yourself back performing for, for an audience again after like being (laughs) denied this pleasure for so long? Well, it was a little bit. Yeah. Uh, but I got over it pretty fast. Like even like rehearsing was, was such a pleasure just being able to play music with people again and, um, you know, talk and tell jokes and stuff, you know, (laughs) like it was great. Um, but yeah, like it felt as though we'd all been through something and now here we were again and trying to, you know, do what we do, which is make a connection from the artist to the audience and hopefully um, give people an emotional experience. Well, Marcus Starling, where can people find you on Twitter? Uh, You can find me at Marcus Starling. 
And uh, I, I mostly, as I've said before, I use Twitter as a means of uh, promoting my musical career. Uh, though I've been doing a few random uh, things here and there with, with Twitter. <laughs> I'm more of a Twitter reader. I follow follow things that happen on Twitter and and laugh. And I also I enjoy your I enjoy on your podcast the the breakdowns that you give of of things that happen on on Twitter as well. Cuz there's a lot of stuff that happens on Twitter that I do not fully understand like because I'm seeing the third hand version of it and then I have to sort of look up what they're talking about. Because I I don't know. I'm not extremely online but that's where I come in. I like to, yeah, I, I like to have it sort of uh, explained to me for sure. Wonderful as always to talk to you. And you're one of the main voices of this show besides me talking every week because your music is sort of the framing device for this program. And uh, I've gotten many compliments. Oh, well, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks a lot. I'm always happy to, uh, to hear the, the music in the, in the podcast. Well, Marcus Starling, thank you so much for joining me and please come back. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, anytime. And uh, it's been a great pleasure talking with you as well. Before we go, just a reminder that we do have a Patreon. Patrons of Junk Filter get access to at least two additional bonus episodes every month. To become a subscriber, please go to patreon.com slash junkfilter. And please follow us on Twitter at junkfilterpod. The original music for this program was provided by Marker Starling. My name is Jesse Hawkins. Thank you so much for listening.